All right, open your Bibles up to Ephesians. We are in chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 7 through 16 this morning. If you have one of our Bibles from the welcome table, it's on page one thir- or, uh, 1037. You'll actually get to turn the page today, so that's kind of exciting. Uh, we've, we've looked at, so far in the first three chapters, we've looked at the construct of the church, right? Paul's laid that out for us, and how the gospel shapes the church and, and, and constructs the church. And now we're looking at, in these last three chapters, the conduct of the church, how, that, how, how what God has shaped us to be actually enables us to live our lives here on, on this earth in obedience to him. And in the, the second half of the chapter, it begins with a statement that ties these two themes together. And it's a statement we need to keep in our minds as we finish out the book of Ephesians because this is the thread that runs through the whole of uh, the, the second half here. He says in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received. And now last week we talked about this, right? The, the message, uh, it was clear that that. Um, Paul is not telling his readers to live in a manner that earns that salvation, right? That completely erases the gospel and the, and the central message of it. But instead, he urges us to live in a manner that reflects the gift of salvation. People need to see that God has saved us. And, and, we, and we show that by the works that he's prepared for us to do uh, uh, from our salvation, not for our salvation, right? Salvation is God's gift to us according to his great love and mercy. Paul's told us this in Ephesians 2, not according to our own effort, and so that we can boast in him and not in ourselves. Ephesians 2 tells us that God saved us by his grace through faith in the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the the heart of the gospel. But God also saved us to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. That's Ephesians 2.10. And these good works give testimony to the truth of the message of the gospel. And they give evidence of God's power to redeem and transform lives. When we do the good works that God has called us to do, we say to one another and to the world, this is really true. Everything that we're living for, everything that we continue to grow an understanding of, this is the reality of our lives. And the end goal of these works is to glorify God through the unity and the maturity uh, of his diverse body of believers. Last week we talked about the necessity of unity and this week we're going to see that the beauty of that unity through the diversity of Christ's gifts to the church. Now maybe you're wondering what role God wants you to play here at Redeemer or if you're, if, even if you're still trying to figure out if, if Redeemer is the church that, that God wants you to, to get involved in. Um, I'll say this. This is like a sidebar, but, but it's necessary. You need to be involved if you're a believer somewhere in a church, right? And we'll, we'll, we'll see this. You can't grow by yourself, not in the way God has called you to. Uh, so maybe you're, you're, you're wondering, you know, what is it that God has for me here? Um, not just for me, but for me to do these good works here at Redeemer. Maybe you've never really thought about the importance of of your unique contribution that God has gifted you for in the church. Well, my prayer is that today's passage will help us all see the beauty of God's design for the spiritual maturity of his church and also the necessity for each of us to do our part to promote that spiritual growth and love. So I want to read this passage. I want to ask for God's help for us to understand it and obey it. 
and then we will dig into the message. It says this, uh, Ephesians 4, verse 7. I forgot to turn my page. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. And he gave gifts to the people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who has descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. Growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching. By human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow into every way into him who is the head, Christ from him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can open it up today and it's the same as it was last week. And it'll be the same next week. We thank you that your word is never changing because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we pray this morning that your spirit who dwells in us as believers would give us understanding into your word and enable us both the desire and the ability to obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we've talked a, a, a little bit before about this time that we live in between the already and the not yet, right? The already of our, of our justification, Christ's life, death, and resurrection has, has been a, applied to our lives. We've been saved through faith, by grace, in Christ's finished work. And, and, and then we have the, the glory that's yet to come. And, and uh, I'm, I'm convinced even more so that this year is a year for us to, to, to cast our gaze toward the eternity that awaits us, right? And yet at the same time, we have to also look what's in front of us in, in the realities of our lives. And so we're caught in this already of our salvation and, and the not yet of our glorification, and, and, and this in-between is, is our sanctification. It's our, it's our spiritual growth together in Christ. But I think sometimes we can sort of get confused on what do we do? How do we grow in this time, right? Um, and, and we tend to focus probably more often on our own personal growth. But we fail to, to, to really see the bigger picture or even to prioritize the growth of the whole church. As believers, we do need to grow personally, but our personal growth is always a function of the corporate growth of the body of Christ. And so here's our, our, our main thought this morning. We, we must do the work of ministry according to the grace that we've been given so that we can grow together in every way into Christ. We must do the work of ministry according to the grace we've been given so that we can grow together in every way into Christ. Look at what Paul says back in verse 7 through 10. It says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, When he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, and he gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? 
The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. Now we need to understand the kind of grace that Paul is talking about here in verse 7. We've touched on it just a little bit in in the beginning here, but he's not talking about the grace of salvation here. Okay, He's talking about the grace for service. They're different. It's a different uh, uh, kind of grace. It's, It's the same grace, the same source, right? It's grace from God, but it's grace for different things. He's not talking about the grace of salvation. He's talking about the grace of service. Every believer shares equally in the grace of salvation. No one gets more, no one gets less. We all get the same grace for salvation in Christ. But each believer is also given a particular measure of grace that enables us to serve one another so that we grow together in the salvation that we've been given. It's not saving grace that Paul has in view here. Again, it's sanctifying grace. It's grace for obedience to Christ and service to his body that results in spiritual growth of the whole. He used similar wording when he described the grace that he'd been given to serve the church back in in chapter 3. If you remember, Ephesians 3, 2, he said this to his readers. He said, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you? And then a a few verses later in verse 7 through 9, he said, I was made a servant of this gospel by what? The gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And now we come back here to chapter 4, verse 7, and Paul says that God didn't just administer sanctifying grace to him. No, no. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he draws from Psalm 68 to show Christ's supremacy as the gift giver. Psalm 68 is is a song of celebration that depicts God's triumphant march from the the wilderness and and Mount Sinai to his sanctuary throne on Mount Zion in Jerusalem after he has defeated Israel's enemies. Paul's quotation is from Psalm 68, 18. And if you go read that verse, you'll notice a discrepancy between what it says and what Paul says here. Psalm 68, 18 uh, says that God received gifts from the people. But Paul here says that he gave gifts to the people. So now hold on a second, Paul. What are you doing, right? Are you misquoting scripture? He's not. Don't worry. The context of the psalm as a whole pictures God as one who provides for his people. That The language is all about God uh, giving salvation for his people and rescuing them. Now, it's possible that Paul was referring to, to um, uh, one of the, the Syriac or the, or the Aramaic translations of the Old Testament instead of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in those translations, they both say that God gave gifts in Psalm 68, 18 instead of received gifts. It's also possible that Paul was simply adapting this psalm to show that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of it. And that's okay. Why? Because everything in the Old Testament is designed to point us to Jesus. And it's helpful for us to remember that. And we can be sure of that because Christ has told us that himself. He said this to the Jewish leaders in John chapter 5, verse 39. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And by scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. And yet they testify about me, Jesus says. 
Paul understands this. He gets this, right? And so he uses Psalm 68, 18 to point his readers to Jesus by showing them that its ultimate fulfillment came when Christ ascended on high after his resurrection and gave a measure of his grace as a gift to each believer. Remember what Paul said at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23? He says, he, referring to God the Father, exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, and also, but also in the one to come. And then he says this in verse 22, and he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as, as head over everything for what? For the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. We come back here to chapter 4, and Paul says that in order for Christ to ascend to God's right hand in the heavens, he first had to, dis- to descend from heaven to earth. Now, there are some differing views among Bible scholars as to what Paul means by the lower parts of the earth here in verse 9. Some think he, he's referring to Hades or hell, but that wouldn't be consistent with Paul's description in the rest of the letter of, of, of demons and evil powers dwelling in the heavenly realms, Right? He's most likely referring to the incarnation of Jesus when he, when he says this. When Jesus clothed himself in humanity and came to earth to die on the cross for sinners and to rise from the grave. The lower parts of the earth, that phrase, can also be tra- translated as the lower parts, namely the earth. And that seems to fit best with what Paul is getting at here. Another possible inter- interpretation is to take it to mean that uh, the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost and was given to every believer Uh, after Christ ascended into heaven. And this view could also be consistent with what Paul's getting at in the rest of the passage because we're talking about spiritual gifts here. So regardless, though, of the interpretive difficulties of some of these phrases, the main point here in these first few verses is, is abundantly clear. What Paul is getting at is that Christ is the supreme being. And being the supreme being... He is the giver of grace to the church because Christ is the one who ascended far above the heavens and he fills all things. God has appointed Christ as head over everything for the church. So Christ himself is the one who administers grace to his church in the form of spiritual gifts. The rest of what Paul says in this passage won't make any sense to us unless we're first convinced that Jesus Christ is the giver of grace. That he is the giver of gifts to the church. He's the head of everything for the church. We benefit from Christ's headship. And so we need to trust that he gives according to his own power, according to his own discretion, and he'll never abuse those things because he's completely perfect and good. And we need to understand that he always gives gifts to the church for the growth of the church. This is why we get these things. He's the giver, so he gets to define the purpose of the gifts. And Paul tells us that purpose in these next few verses as he lists some of the gifts that Jesus has given to the church. Look at verse 11. And he himself, being Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith, 
and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into, the, into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Now, normally we tend to think of spiritual gifts as qualities or, or abilities that the Holy Spirit has, has endowed us with uh, and the, 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 the supernatural, uh, extraordinary, extraordinary uh, gifts, the just, just enhanced abilities or qualities. But in verse 11, Paul actually lists people here that Christ has given to the church as gifts. He said he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Apostles were those that were commissioned by Christ to proclaim the gospel message. Paul uh, opened the letter by, by identifying himself as an apostle of Jesus, right? They became founders of the early church. Prophets were those in the New Testament who helped lay that foundation alongside the apostles. Paul referred to both of them at the end of chapter 2 when he also talked about Jesus being the chief cornerstone of the church, of the building. God's household is what he says. New Testament prophets often communicated the truth of the gospel to the church in a timely way that dealt with specific things that the church was facing at the time. Along with the apostles, they also received and revealed the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles with the Jews in the family of God. Paul told us this in Ephesians 3.5. What about evangelists? Evangelists are those who are especially gifted in proclaiming the gospel wherever they go. Paul was an evangelist at heart, right? Although his apostolic call, uh, calling also gave him the authority to receive and to relay revelation from the Holy Spirit and to lead the church. Thus, we have a large portion of the New Testament being words from Paul. His gospel-centered teachings and his instructions to the local churches. In the Greek, Paul groups pastors and teachers. You'll notice in your English translation, it says some, 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 some. Four sums, not five, right? And if we think about it, this makes sense when we understand that both of these are descriptions of the role of, an, of elders in the church. The word Paul uses for pastors can also be translated as, as shepherd or shepherds. Elders care for and they watch over God's flock as members of the church. In 1 Timothy and in Titus, also letters from Paul to these men, Paul also says that the elders must be able to teach. And so that means that they must be able to explain and apply the scriptures for the people under their care. Now, Christians differ over whether or not apostolic or prophetic gifts still continue today, but the text doesn't settle that argument for us here. That's not the point of what Paul's getting at. It's not the concern of what he's communicating. Paul is writing to a church in the first century where apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers were all active in the church. So for them, it's relevant. And his point is that God has given these leaders as gifts to the church to equip the saints, a.k.a. everybody in the church, right? We've, we've talked about saint is, is synonymous with believer. It's not a special office with special privileges. And God has given these leaders as gifts to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, as the, the, the current and only elder here at Redeemer which, Lord willing, I will not be the only elder here in the long run. Uh, I fall under the category of pastor and teacher. And I got to admit that it's a little bit awkward for me to stand up here and tell you that Paul says I'm a gift to you, right? 
but one but as one who is called to care for you and instruct you by correctly explaining and applying scripture i also can't pretend that paul isn't saying what he says here nor can i ignore the fact that these aren't just paul's words remember that because god has given paul this administration of grace as an apostle to speak the words of the lord and become scripture that these aren't just paul's words these are the words of god Holy Spirit-inspired, truthful words. God gave Paul a message of, a measure of grace to communicate the message of, of these truths to the church. And what we need to understand is, is that it's not the giftedness of the individual that Paul is emphasizing here. It's the growth of the whole body. We can't just take this one verse and strut around and be like, man, church, you're so lucky to have me. Right? We have to keep it in its context and see what he's actually getting at. Our spiritual gifts are never meant to make the believer stand out. They're always meant to make the body stand up and, to, and stand firm in Christ. Now, it would be a misapplication of this passage for me to try and draw out personal gain at your expense because Paul says, I'm a gift to you. If I did that, I wouldn't be pastoring and I wouldn't be teaching in the way that Paul describes here. But it would also be a misapplication of this passage if I were to diminish the goodness of Christ's gifts listed here. We need to remember that these are gifts from Christ for the church. Now, you've heard me say this multiple times, and I mean it over and over and over. I love you. Whether it's your first time or you've joined us from the launch team, it is my, one of my greatest joys to be the pastor of this church and to not just be the pastor of Redeemer Community Church, but to, to pastor people in this church. I love being your pastor. You've also heard me say on more than one Sunday morning that we come to hear the word and not the preacher. And I mean that, right? Our confidence and our dependence is upon God and always and only God and his word and not in any man. So that when Tim Franks comes next week and he's preaching the same word, you're not sitting there going, man, Eric's so much better. Because that's probably where you'd lean, right? Instead of, boy, why isn't Tim our pastor or our preacher? But we need to understand this. We need preachers who will preach the word of God. Men who will not preach themselves. Men who will not preach man-made traditions. Men who will not preach therapeutic moralism. Just do this and you'll be good. Men who will hold to the faithful message of the gospel as taught in Scripture so that they will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it, as Paul says in Titus 1.9. And I want you to know that because I love you and because I love God, that's my commitment to you. And when Tim Franks comes to preach next week, that will be his commitment to you. And as we grow in obedience to God by, by gaining more elders in this church, that will be their commitment to you. Why? Because that's God's gift to you. The main thing that all of these leaders have in common, 
apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, is that they are all communicators of the gospel to the body of Christ in some way. They equip the believers in the church with the gospel so that each believer can participate in the work of the gospel. He calls it work of the work of the ministry so that the whole church benefits as a result. The work of the leaders in the church is to equip the members of the church with a gospel mindset so that we all do the good works of the gospel that God has prepared ahead of time for us to do, Ephesians 2.10. And so that we can build up the body of Christ together, Ephesians 4.12. This means that I shouldn't be the one, the first one, to share the gospel with those that God has placed near you, friends, family, coworkers, whatever relationship spheres you have. When you invite someone to church, I will know that I, I'm doing my job as an equipper. If that person hears me preach the gospel and they turn to you and, he, and, and they say, he's saying the same thing that you keep telling me. My heart for you as a believer in Christ is to want to share the gospel with someone more than you want to invite them to church. That might sound weird. I'm not saying I don't want you to invite them to church, but if you had to choose between the two, give them Jesus now. Don't bring them to me to do it. God has called you to do that. You take the good news with you. I'll know I'm doing my job as an equipper when I call a church member to check on them and they, and they say, man, I, I, I've been called by, you're the fifth one that's called me this week. We have meals stacked up for the next two weeks. Somebody's coming over to shovel my driveway. People have prayed with me. When the body's serving the body, they're being equipped to do so. In the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that I should never be doing these things. It's important for me to share the gospel, not just up here, but in my backyard with my neighbors. As I sit in my office and people come in and visit with my friends and my family, it's important that I also serve in the body when the Lord gives me opportunities. But what it does mean is that my primary role according to what Paul says here, is to help you do gospel work with gospel purpose on a regular basis, to evangelize the lost, to disciple one another in the love of Christ, so that as a church we grow. We grow spiritually. The goal of gospel ministry is unity and maturity in Christ. Paul says to the church, or says that the church leaders equip the saints to do the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ, up verse 13, excuse me, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a, stand, a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Now, he's already told us the importance of unity in the first six verses of chapter 4. So that's on our mind as we go through this. He re reiterates it here in verse 13. The goal of gospel ministry is unity in the gospel and in our relationship with the one whom the gospel is about, Jesus Christ. The work of ministry in the church helps us hold fast to the work of the gospel in our lives. And it deepens our experiential knowledge in 
God's Son and of God's Son. It grows our relationship with Jesus and our understanding of what he has done and what he has taught to us. The other goal that Paul says here is that of gospel ministry is the maturity of the body of Christ. As we do the work of ministry in the church and we become more and more unified with each other, we also then grow spiritually together as a fruit of that. In chapter 2, Paul said that Christ created in himself one new man from Jew and Gentile and reconciled both to God in one body through the cross. Here Paul gives the picture of that body then growing up in wisdom and stature into a mature adult. And what's the gauge then that he uses for spiritual maturity? The bar is set really high. According to the measure of Christ's fullness, Jesus is the standard of of spiritual maturity. In Ephesians 3.19, Paul prayed that his readers would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. In chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says that the church is Christ's body and the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And, in, and here he says that as Christ's body, we are to grow into the full measure of Christ's divine, human, divine and human perfection. Our completeness is to be measured by Christ's completeness. Now, when we hear that, we all immediately understand that we will never fully realize that completeness on this side of eternity. That's what we talked about at the very beginning, right? Yes, we've been uh, uh, made righteous by God through salvation. Yes, we're going to be completely glorified. But it doesn't. It takes like five minutes to think about yesterday and go, there's still sin in my life, Right? But we shouldn't lose hope because the gospel defines God's grace for us. And it tells us that God is the one who grows us into the fullness of Christ. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the grace that God has given to us. He not only saves us from our sin and and declares us righteous, but he also then enables us to practice the righteousness that we've been given. This is not a passive thing for us while we wait. This is why Paul says what he says in Philippians 3. Right after we, we read Philippians 2, maybe last week or the week before, with the attitude that we are to have in unity with one another, that Christ-like attitude. Then Paul goes on to say this in Philippians 3, verses 12 through 15. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort I make every effort to take hold of it. Why? Because I also have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. I like one way, in a, uh, or I like the way another author puts it. He says the gospel frees us from the impossible burden of obeying God in order to be accepted by Him. Amen and amen. Right? And then he says, but that doesn't mean that the more gospel-centered or Christ-centered we are, the less concerned we will be about our conduct. 
On the contrary, the more we grasp the gospel, the more intent we'll be on obeying God's word. The gospel-thrilled heart yearns to experience more and more of the gospel's transformation. And as a church with members who have gospel-thrilled hearts, we will pursue gospel transformation together and make every effort to take hold of the perfection that we've been given because the perfect one has taken hold of us. Solid gospel teaching helps equip the saints to do solid gospel work that helps the whole body grow and mature into the fullness of Christ. And if we're growing into maturity, then we won't be stumbling in immaturity. Look at verse 14. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building it up, for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Do you notice the contrasting pictures that Paul gives here in verses 13 and 14? One is of the church as a mature adult, and the other is of the church as an immature child. Spiritual immaturity leads to instability. It leads to vulnerability to every kind of false teaching. We need to continue to grow into the maturity of Christ so that we're not deceived and we're not swayed by teaching that is contrary to Christ and the gospel. The reason why Paul says Christ gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers as gifts to the church is because through their gospel teaching, these leaders help the church grow in Christ's likeness. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says, we proclaim him, meaning Jesus, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul says, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. It's Colossians 1, 28, 29. That word labor, that means to, to work oneself to exhaustion. To exhaustion. Paul uses all of his energy to guard and instruct the church in the wisdom of Christ. This is what he says here. But he exerts himself this way because Christ has gifted him for that work and strengthened him to carry it out for the benefit of the church. Paul can work to exhaustion because he knows he's not working in his own strength. He's working in the strength that God richly provides, and he knows he can never exhaust God's strength. False teachers, on the other hand, use their energy to deceive the church for personal gain. They use human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit to drag people around from one teaching to the next. That phrase, human cunning, in the Greek literally means to play with loaded dice. These teachers are cheaters. They're swindlers, and they gamble with souls. That word cleverness literally means readiness to do any, everything or anything. These teachers are skilled in the art of deceit, and they have all kinds of tricks up their sleeves. If something doesn't work, they'll just move on to the next. They're not gifts to the church. They're a danger to it. And that's why Paul exhorts the church in verse 15. 
He takes this ideal that he stated in verse 13 and he turns it then into a command here. He says, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Now, the gospel is the word of truth, according to what Paul has said in Ephesians 1.13. To speak the truth to one another is to speak about the gospel and all its implications in our lives. It's to point one another to Christ in all his grace and glory. It's to marvel at the riches of God's mercy and his love and to remind one another that we have been rescued from sin that so easily entangles and from death, from God's wrath and judgment. It also means that when we see sin that remains in each other's lives, we don't ignore it. We talk to one another about it. We urge one another toward repentance. We pray for one another. We offer help so that we don't continue in that sin, but we pursue Christ instead. But we need to speak this truth in love. And we don't get to define that love. And neither does our culture. God defines that kind of love in passages like 1 Corinthians 13, like 1 John 3 and 4. It's the love of Christ. It's, it's Christ and, and his love who is our head. And we grow in every way into our union with him when we speak the truth of the gospel to one another in the posture of the gospel, which is love. If there is no truth, then there is no growth. If there is no love, then there is no growth. And certainly if there is no Christ, there is no growth. The heart that beats in the body of Christ is the gospel. And the gospel is the word of truth that's expressed in love. We grow in every way because every saint is called to speak the truth in love as they participate together in the work of ministry. If there is no body, there is no growth. Spiritual maturity is a corporate thing. No one really grows on their own in isolation. You need others, and they need you. Remember what Paul said in verse 7. Now grace was given, what? To each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. The whole body promotes the growth of the whole body. How? By the proper working of each individual part. The best way for you to promote your own spiritual growth is to promote the growth of the body. To promote the growth of the whole church. That phrase in verse 16, building itself up, gives this picture of assisting in the construction of a building that's not yet complete. Now, we read verse 15 and 16. Maybe they sounded familiar to you because they sound a lot like something Paul Described back in chapter 2 in verse 21 and 22. Listen. It says, In him, Christ, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. 
God is building us up. And God has given each of us grace according to the measure of Christ's gift so that we can participate in the construction. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about our spiritual growth, our sanctification. We don't work for our salvation, but we work in our salvation by God's grace to grow together into the fullness of Christ. We do not just stand around twiddling our thumbs waiting for Jesus to return. And like Paul, we labor for this, but we strive with Christ's strength that works so powerfully in us through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Peter says that. He's not only declared us righteous, but now he enables us to practice the righteousness that we've been given so that we can promote the growth of the body for the building of itself up in love. Every believer, every believer is gifted for ministry in the body of Christ. Every believer has some gifts. Not every believer has the same gifts. All of our gifts, however, are for the same purpose. What is that? Unity and maturity in the body of Christ for the glory of God. And all of our gifts are given to us by the risen and ascended Jesus Christ so that we might be filled with his fullness. So let's make unity and maturity our goal as we grow as a church. Unity and maturity in Christ. Let's depend on the spirit whom we've been given, who dwells in us and who empowers us to accomplish these things. Let's, and let's be equipped saints who do the work of ministry and speak the truth of love. And let us, as Paul says, grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Amen? Father, we thank you that you have given us all things in Christ, that you have filled us, that we are the fullness of Jesus as his body. Thank you for the way that you've constructed the church and for the way that you've given us work of gospel ministry to do to build ourselves up in love. Not in our power, but in the power that you've given to us through your spirit. Lord, help us to grow in obedience to Christ because of all that Christ has given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.